If you want to make your way in uh, your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, where we're going to find ourselves in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, or actually getting towards the end. So if you've got uh, your Bible with you, if you don't, there should be Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you. Or if you're a child of technology, you've got your idle phone or your Satan song, feel free to take that out and you can uh, just type in Matthew chapter 6 and it should get you there in your favorite browser. But as you make your way that direction, uh, again, we are in the middle or, or making our way to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6. Matthew 5-7 through 7 is what is known as this first teaching or discourse by Jesus. As we go through the book of Matthew, what we're going to find is uh, really five different teachings are highlighted through Matthew's account, and this is the first of the uh, discourses that he's going to highlight. And this is also a major portion of what Jesus' ministry looked like. He was what we looked at the end of chapter 4. He was first a teacher. And then secondly, he was a preacher, and he was most famously around the nation of Israel, a healer. But the, the mainstays of his ministry, it was teaching and preaching, which just means to herald something with emphasis. So just to get excited about what you're teaching on. And so as Jesus began this Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he started by sitting down, hence why we sit and teach the Bible. He started by sitting and uh, teaching his disciples to begin with. So those that were closest to him were who he started the teaching with the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. But then, as he teaches, uh, no doubt people began to come towards him. They knew him as this great healer in the land of Galilee. And so, what I put up here on the screen for you is he was addressing a mixed multitude. And what I mean by that is uh, there were people that were uh, Jewish believers, there were uh, uh, Gentile believers, there were uh, Jewish non-believers like the Pharisees and the scribes. And there were also just people that wanted to see the freak show. They're like, this thing's a circus. I want to go check this deal out. So there were all these people that came uh, all around Jesus creating this mixed multitude, which, was, which is why you can really boil it down into two groups. These are the two groups that he's addressing. First, the unbeliever. So for the unbeliever, the point of the Sermon on the Mount is to drive them to Christ. And, and his point is, uh, you cannot get there on your own. You cannot get there through the law. No matter how hard you try, you are going to be a lawbreaker, and the wages of being a lawbreaker is death. And so for each of us, we have this problem. And Jesus, in fact, as he's teaching through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he makes it clear that if you think the law is hard to do, what happens when we spiritualize the law? So in our previous section in Matthew 5, he talked about murder, right? We can all agree murder's bad. You can nod your heads. It's okay. There's caffeine in the back if you need some. Murder's bad. We all agree to that. But what Jesus goes on to say is if you're angry with your brother, it's as if you murdered him. That's a way bigger deal all of a sudden because all of us have been angry. And so as the law goes from just strictly being a moral code we're to follow to then being something that is spiritualized, now this is internal, we have a much bigger problem. And so for the unbeliever, the point is to direct us towards Christ, to drive them towards him so that he can be their savior. Secondly, then, this next group is the believer, right? So from uh, the time of Jesus, 2,000 years ago, until today, he is addressing the believer in this way. He's directing us how to live in Christ. 
This is how we are to conduct ourselves as children of God, both then and now. And, and here's the thing. He's directing us as to how we are to be as citizens of heaven. Do you understand that? That when you said, I do to Jesus, when you accepted him into your heart, no matter when that took place, at that moment in time, you became a citizen of heaven. Now the question is, as a citizen of heaven, with this newfound citizenship, what do I do with it? How do I live? And so Jesus is going to give them direction. In Matthew 5, he started with the Beatitudes. He then went on to give them six different examples. Here's different reasons why the law is now spiritualized. And then last week, we looked at disciplines in faith. Here's disciplines that we can put into our life as we learn how to live as a citizen of heaven. And we looked at what we do with our money, how we are to conduct ourselves in our prayer life, how we are to forgive in this outrageous kind of way where we forgive everyone. And then lastly, how we are to condition our bodies as we look at fasting, right? That's, that's one of those topics that's not always the most fun. I don't like to fast. That hurts. And so Jesus is giving us these disciplines, and this is where we find he's going to transition in chapter 6, verse 19, is where we're going to pick up today. So if you want to uh, begin with me there, we'll read down to verse 24 to start, and then, Lord willing, we'll finish up the sixth chapter today. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now this word mammon isn't one that's in our normal everyday vernacular, most likely, but it just means riches. So anything you consider riches or possessions, that's what he's meaning. Money, possessions, things, stuff is another way to look at it. So the question Jesus poses, or what he, he's really putting out there for them, it's this, where are you wanting to amass wealth at? Because what I just shared with you in the intro is that we are now citizens of heaven as believers, but here's the thing, we're actually dual citizens. We're also still citizens of this earth. And how do I know this? And you can write this down, because I thought this up all on my own. This is earth-shattering. We know we're citizens of heaven, or citizens of earth, because we are on earth. There you go. Because you're here. That's how you know you're a citizen of here. And so with that, we actually have a decision to make. And the decision is this, where am I going to put my savings account? Where am I going to amass wealth? I, I have a choice. I can do it in heaven or I can do it on earth. Now, you probably heard it said in churches or around Christian people that money is the root of evil. Anyone heard that? Again, you can nod heads. It's okay. Uh, let me take you, though, to the scripture that that actually is taken from so you can understand that's not actually what Paul was saying to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, this is what Paul 
actually says uh, to his young protege, he says in verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so that is actually not what Paul told Timothy. He never said money is evil. He says the love of money is the root of evil. So the reality is money doesn't have an emotion. It's an inanimate object. It's neither good nor evil. It's neither up nor down. It just is. Possessions just are. The real question at hand, the love of money, that ties an emotion to it. The issue is uh, me. I'm the issue with money. We are the ones that actually have the problem with finance and with stuff, with gaining things. Now, what Jesus is warning them then about is, look, you need to be careful about where you want to collect things, where you want to put your trust, because the reality of it is, if we are going to put our trust, our faith in any kind of monetary wealth in this life, it will not last. You probably all heard the phrase before, right? We've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul attached to the back of it, right? Like the reality of it is we cannot take any of these things with us. And so wherever we put our faith and trust in, here's the next dangerous piece. Uh, it then becomes our God. So when we put our time and our attention and our resources, right? Our time is a resource, Money is a resource. Whatever we put it into, the dangerous piece about this is it can so easily become a God, a little g God. And here's the issue at hand. What happens when uh, God looks really good in my bank account? I feel good about God. What happens when my bank account changes? All of a sudden, don't feel so good about God. But then we take it to just uh, personal relationships and, and stuff and things. What happens when God gets sick? or God gets a diagnosis. What happens when all these things happen to God when I've changed who God really is in my life? So this is the dangerous piece of making anything God that is not him. It's not eternal. Now, the good news, what Jesus is sharing here is, look, you have an option as a citizen of heaven. You can store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves can't steal. Here's the only thing we can actually take with us to heaven, and it is people, souls, individuals. They're the only things we get to take with us, with a little caveat to that. We also get to take our whole pile of deeds, all the things that we do here in this life, we get to show up in front of Jesus with that pile. How many of you are nervous about that now? I am. And so as we have this interaction with Jesus, He's going to take a look at this pile and he's going, to, he's going to lay waste to all the things that were just for our own selfish desires. And then it's going to boil down to what did you do to help people? And those are going to be the things, amazingly enough, that are going to be the gold and the silver and the diamonds and the jewels. And so much with our economy says that that is not important. You don't have time for that person, for that conversation and yet what Jesus says is that you need to have time for that person, for that conversation, because all the rest of it, it's going to burn up. It's all wood, hay, and stubble. It's not going to last. 
And so the question uh, that some might have, at least I had because I put it on the screen, is what then do I do with the resources I'm given? I've got resources. Everybody in this room has resources. They may not be this, the same as everyone else, but you all have, you all for sure have time, right? So that is a resource. We have some kind of financial means. We have some kind of a physical presence. We have a family even perhaps as a resource. My wife uses our kids, uses, that sounds bad. She uses our kids as a resource. She is not afraid to put those little rascals to work because if they got idle hands, they're going to be messing something up. They're a resource. So what then do we do with these resources? And so for that, I'm going to actually take you to a parable in Luke chapter 16. So if you want to turn to your right just a little bit to Luke chapter 16, this is the parable of the unjust steward. Now before we get there, uh, parables, it's been said by Bible teachers that you shouldn't actually teach a parable until you've been teaching the Bible 20 years. So I'm going to mess that up right now. Uh, but let me just share with you that parables are just an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now, to me, parables throughout the years have been done some injustice because uh, different teachers and commentators have tried to go through and parcel out every possible scenario with everything Jesus mentioned in a parable. But let me just focus your attention on this, that he is typically in a parable trying to drive home one main point. So don't get yourself all cut up in, in the periphery, in the minutia. Jesus is trying to drive home a point with a parable. He's trying to convey an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning tied to it. So Luke chapter 16, we're going to look at these first 13 verses with this story. He also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. And so he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking my stewardship from me, and I cannot dig. No good with my hands. I'm too ashamed to beg. A little bit of a pride problem. I have resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. And so he called every one of his master's debtors to him, and he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And so he said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. And then he went to another, and he said, How much do you owe? And so he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write down eighty. And so the master commended the unjust steward because he dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd than the of, in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home, that he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust in much, Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you true, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. 
So Jesus ends this parable the same way we just looked at the end of verse 24 of Matthew 6, that you cannot serve both God and mammon. Now, I don't know about you, but as I look at this parable, I think, what in the world? Like, th- this guy is a dirtbag. Anybody else feel it? Like, he goes to all his masters, all of everybody that owes his master money, and begins to cut their bills so that when he gets fired, he'll actually be received into the other guy's houses. He was basically setting himself up to get another job. He's like, dude, I'm not going to go out and dig ditches. And I'm certainly too proud to beg. i got to go fix myself up for another job. And so he goes out behind his master's back and begins to cut people's uh, debts that they owe and forgive things. This is a crazy story at first glance. But let me just boil it down quickly for you. What this servant knew was he had a date with the master. He knew his time was coming where he was going to have to stand and give an account. And so what he does is he uses his present resources. He used his position to affect his future outcome. Now then, what we see is Jesus mentions in verse 12, therefore, if you are if you cannot be faithful in unrighteous mammon, if you can't be faithful in what's in this world, how then are you going to be trusted with anything eternal? So what we see is in our lives, each of us know that we have a time coming. There is a time where we are going to all have to give an account. And the question is going to come is, what did you do with the resources you had while you had the time to do something about it. Because the reality of it is, we are all just stewards. We are all just trusted with the things that we have in this life. They're not really ours. How do we know that? Go back to the example about the the U-Haul behind the hearse, right? None of it's going to go with you. Therefore, it's not really yours. And here's the sad part of the reality. Whatever thing you love so very much, that hobby, that thing, that 401k, that balance sheet, your kids probably aren't going to care nearly as much about it as you do. That's just the truth. You're going to be all excited about it, but they're probably not. We'd like to fool ourselves and believe that they will, but they won't. So the point of it is, what are we going to do with the time we have with the resources that we've been given? Because most of us have a tendency to worship the stuff, right? He blesses us with the thing, and then we end up worshiping the thing that he blessed us with possessions, finances, things are merely tools for us to lead people to Jesus. Period. The only place we can make an eternal investment, this is the point that he's trying to drive home, even with an unrighteous guy like this man. This man knew his time was limited. He knew he only had a short period to affect his future outcome. What's he going to do with it? He's shrewd about it. He goes out and starts making connections. And so this is the point of the story that Jesus is trying to share. Now then, back to Matthew chapter 6. And what we see here is he, he moves then to the lamp of the body in verse 22. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if the lamp is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. The reality of things and possessions and stuff is 
it, it causes us to actually have the light blocked out. It, it, we put so much pressure on ourselves to maintain that thing, to gain that thing, to keep that thing that we work so doggone hard for that the next thing you know, the light is all blocked out. I don't have time to sit down and talk to you because I'm too busy dealing with my stuff. And so the issue that Jesus is trying to convey is if in Matthew 5, he says you are the salt and the light, you're the light of the world, what happens if the light is blocked? Well, then the reality is there is no light. If, our, if we're the only light in this world and we are allowing the things to weigh us down and block it out, then there is no light. He goes on in verse 24. This is the same verse we looked at in Luke 16. No one can serve two masters. Now, the idea of slavery is one that for us is a little bit uh, twisted because all we know is American slavery and the, and the evils surrounding that. But in the Old Testament, it was different. In the Old Testament, most slavery worked like this. If you went out and you spent a bunch of money, you racked up a bunch of charges on the city bank, you owed Capital One some bucks, but you don't have the means to pay for it, you could sell yourself into slavery to a rich owner. You could make a decision. He would pay off your bill, but in uh, the trade, you would have to work for six years to pay it off. And on the seventh year, you would go free. And so it was this way to actually be able to pay down your debt. Now, you could make a choice at the end of the sixth year if you had such a good relationship with this owner. If you said, listen, you've been a tremendous master to me. I get three meals a day. You take care of housing. You are awesome. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to be a free will bondservant to you. You could, you could make that decision and be a bondservant for the rest of your life. You could say, listen, I want to stay in your house. What they would do is they would actually take the earlobe of the person, they would put it up against a tree or up against a, a, a doorpost, some piece of wood, and they would drive a nail through it and put an earring in, and that would be the sign. The piercing would be the sign of the bondservant, which is why when the Apostle Paul addresses the churches, he says, I am a free will bondservant to Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. And so what Jesus, when he's talking about slavery, and he's talking about these two different masters, he's saying, listen, you have a choice to make. Which one will you serve? You can either serve uh, the mammon here on earth, or you can serve the king of kings. Now, far too often, at least in my own life, what I choose to serve is old number one. I am my favorite person, because being a free will bondservant means I have to lay my will down. That's the piece that I struggle with. I don't want to lay my will down. I don't want to put away with that. But again, the issue is uh, we make terrible gods and goddesses. We really do. Because uh, to go back to the previous example, what happens when God gets sick? What happens when God can't pay the bills? What happens when God loses his job? This is the danger that happens when we make ourselves a little G-God? What happens when there's a pandemic? Then, all of a sudden, worry sets in, right? We become very nervous and upset and worried, which is why in the next section, Jesus transitions his teaching to worry. He makes a connection. He begins in verse 25 by saying, therefore, Stop there. Anytime we read the word therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what is it therefore? It's there to point us back to the previous passage. So Jesus is making a connection to 
money and wealth and possessions with this statement. He says, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit, that's approximately 18 inches, it's just a form of measurement, one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Verse 30, Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows what you need, uh, knows that you need all these things. And so he connects the story of stuff to worry. And what we find is throughout Scripture, what God is wanting to point out is that he will provide in every possible way. In fact, we're going to ask the Apostle Paul to actually answer this question for us. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. This is what he tells the Philippian church, and they were not a church that had a lot of money. They were a poor area. They struggled financially. They were unlike the Corinthians. The Corinthians struggled with uh, sin, but they had plenty of money. These folks uh, were, were good people. They were righteous people, but they struggled financially. And so this is why the Apostle Paul, writing to them in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, and my God, I love the way he personalizes it, shall supply your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. My God will supply your needs. So where are the needs going to come from? I don't know, but my God's going to supply them. The question is, if God's going to supply our needs, what then are our needs? And this is usually where we sweat just a little bit. We're going to listen to Paul. He's going to answer this next one. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, this is what he tells Timothy, speaking of need. And I'll actually begin in verse 6, because I think this is highlighter worthy in your Bible. He says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. Boy, if you're going to highlight something, that's a spot to highlight. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And here in verse 8, he says, having food and clothing... With these, we shall be content. Boy, how many of us are content with food and clothing? I knew Paul was going to say that. Oh. So this is what contentment looks like. Notice he didn't even say a house, a roof over our head. And we look in the life of Jesus. He said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So the promise here, though, is that I'm going to take care of your needs. And so when we think about our lack of resources, all of us in this room go, you know what, i got a roof over my head. God's already taken care of me even better than what Paul wrote to Timothy about way back 2,000 years ago. So Jesus says, look to nature when you're concerned about these things. Look to the birds of the air. And what we notice about birds is they don't fret. They just go about nest building, baby feeding, this is what they do, right? They, they're just about doing their thing. 
Now, I'm going to bring this up to you, and you're going to go, yeah, but have you ever seen a bird under attack? Birds can make one tremendous amount of of racket whenever someone is coming upon their nest. They squawk and flail their arms around when a big old chicken hawk lands. They know their time is about to end. But I would share with you that that is not worry from a bird. That is concern. And there is a major difference between concern in our life and worry. Because what worry does is worry just looks to the future and has all these different scenarios that might or might not happen. What about this? What about that? Concern looks at a present reality and goes, I'm going to have to do something here. And action is required. Right? My kids are in the road. Action is probably required. I'm not going to worry about that thing. I'm going to go do something about it. So the question is, what then should we do about impending danger? What should we do about our concerns? So glad you asked. We're going to let Paul answer this one again. Back to Philippians 4. I should have just stayed right there. Philippians 4, this is what he says in verse 6. Philippians 4, 6, he says, Be anxious for nothing. The word anxious and worry are interchangeable. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That when you have the worry, we are called first, not last, not after we've already tried to make a mess of it, but first we are called to lay it at the feet of Jesus. And here's what Jesus is saying about the birds. He's saying, look, here's grass in the field. Here's birds flying around the air. They even know not to be worried. They know they're going to be taken care of. And and this is a creator-creation relationship. They know their creator is going to take care of them. And so for us, we have a creator and a creation relationship as well. right? We know he is almighty. We are certainly not almighty. We have a, a time frame here. And yet, what we're also told throughout Scripture is we have a far deeper relationship than creator-creation. We have a father-son. We have a father-daughter relationship. And so if this is the relationship that we have, then what I am called to do is take it to my dad. I'm called to lay it at his feet and say, listen, Lord, I don't know how you're going to make this thing right. I don't know how you're going to clean this mess up. I play a big part in this thing, but however you're going to do it, I'm going to be thankful. I'm going to pray to you. And what Paul says is that we are to be thankful in all things, by the way, not for all things. There are things we cannot be thankful for. We just flatly cannot be thankful for that thing. But in that thing, we are called with thanksgiving and prayer and supplication to make our requests known to God. Let him take care of it. Now, some of you are going to say, here's the deal. I'm a professional worrier. I was actually drafted in the first round of the NWL. That's the National Warriors League. If you've played any of that fantasy league at all or not. But I'm a part of this. So as a professional warrior, what about me? So I want to just take the opportunity to share with you what worry actually does in a life. Three different things for takeaways for what worry does. Number one, worry demeans the character of God. What do I mean by that? We looked last week at the name of God. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Moses is out there in the wilderness. He's uh, on the backside of the Sinai, and he's talking to God. He's talking to a plant that is on fire. If you don't think that's a weird story, you need to probably check your pulse. That's weird. 
He's talking to a plant that's on fire. And as he's talking to the plant that's on fire, the plant says, I want you to go to Israel and I want you to bring them out of Egypt. I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And Moses says, okay, who am I supposed to tell him sent me? You want me to go talk to Pharaoh? You want me to go talk to Israel? Their first question is going to be, on what authority? Who sent you? And in Exodus 3.14, he says, you tell them, I am sent you. I am that I am. Our best translation we can come up with is that's either Yahweh or Jehovah. The Jewish people felt like this name was so holy, they would only write the consonants. They would only write Y-H-V-H. So we've lost the vowels in the middle. So we're not sure if it's Jehovah, if it's Yahweh, but that's not the point. The point is, I am who sent you. I am what? You fill in the blank. Whatever you need, I am that. So if you're looking for righteousness, you can refer to Jehovah to Sidkenu. I am your righteousness. If you're looking for provision, Jehovah Jireh. I am your provider. You get the idea that over and over again, the great I am is who I am. I am the becoming one. Jesus would actually take this so far that in 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is what the Apostle Paul writes here. He says, For he, being God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I am so willing to take your needs on. Jesus even came to take our sin on. He became sin for us. And his very name, Jesus, translated into Hebrew, is Yeshua. Jehovah Shua. Jehovah is salvation. By his very name, it spoke to his purpose. His very name said that I'm going to come and do this thing. And when I worry, I'm saying you can't possibly do this thing for me. I demean his character. The second thing is worry has no value. Do any of you worry or remember what you were worrying about 12 months ago? I mean, think about what you were worrying about. This is pre-COVID-19. What in the world? There may be some things you can kind of remember, general ideas, but at the time, it consumed your thoughts. I'm guessing while you're sitting here today, it doesn't consume your thoughts anymore. And the reason is, worry has no value. This is why Jesus compares it to the grass in the field. It's going to burn up. There's nothing here of any value. And so we've committed all this time and all this effort into something that never comes to pass. Now, for some people that have worried, say, well, it's a good thing I worried about it because you see it didn't actually happen. Well, that's, that's kind of a backward way of thinking about it. Because the reality is we come up with all these what-if statements and they never really happen. Thirdly and finally, and this is a point that Jesus drives home intentionally with verse 30. Notice with me, he says, Oh, you of little faith. Worry shows an absence of faith. Now, faith in this Christian life is a really, really big deal. And what I mean by that is, uh, by faith, Hebrews 11.6 says, by faith, I am able to please God, which means without faith, I cannot please God. I don't know if you uh, are in the camp that would like to please God, but I would like to. So by faith, this is how I can please God. By, 
Faith, I am saved, is what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. He says, by grace through faith is how you were saved. Anyone want salvation? I'd like that as well. By faith, I'm saved. By faith, I'm called to grow. Colossians 2, 7, he says, I'm to be rooted and grounded in faith. This is how I'm supposed to grow from faith to faith. And then lastly, by faith, the just live. I'm justified by faith, justification, just as if I'd never sinned by faith. This begins in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. I'll go back to the Old Testament just so we can tie the two together. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. This is a theme that Paul grabs a hold of and repeats it in Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, Hebrews 10.38. The just shall live by faith. This is such an impactful verse, by the way, that when Martin Luther read this 500 years ago, this spoke deeply to his soul. And as a Catholic priest who tried by his own works over and over again to, to somehow be justified before God, and he couldn't do it, and he couldn't do it, he even went so far as to beat himself into submission, and he could not do it. And then he came across Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. It changed everything for him. So much so that uh, he started the Lutheran Church and the Protestant Reformation. Kind of a big deal. The whole reason we're sitting here today. So praise the Lord that the just live by faith. But here's the thing, when it comes to worry, this word worry or anxiousness can also be translated to be choked or strangled. So what worry and anxiety actually do is it chokes out my faith. It strangles it. So what does, what should faith look like? One last place. I promise I'm done with the Bible drills. This is what was written in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. He says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. Faith looks like your and my testimony. But the thing is, it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If I, if I desire to only see, that's the only way I'm going to believe, it's not faith. But for those that walk by faith, what you find is that you grow in this. It's a step. It's, it's one piece at a time. Here a little, there a little. Now then, continuing on, Back to Matthew 6. In verse 32, he says this. Oh, excuse me, verse 33. Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God. The pivotal verse in the whole chapter. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so how is it that I'm supposed to cure worry? It's this simple. To turn my eyes on Jesus is to take them off of my worry. To turn my eyes to Him, His situation, His righteousness, what He would have for me, takes it off of my present situation. My stuff, my wealth, my problems, this is where we're able to turn it. And what we find is that as we do this, my will transitions to actually becoming His will. So you want to see prayer answered in your life. This is one way to see it. Continue to seek his righteousness. Follow after him because 
guess what? Here's a little clue. His will is always going to be done. So if you like answered prayer, you want things to, to happen in your life, when your will becomes His will, things are going to happen. It's amazing. Now then, Jesus specifically refers them to tomorrow and today for this reason, because laying down my life, my will, is something that has to happen daily. When we went through the Lord's Prayer, what did we look at? Give us this day, our daily bread. That the bread of life is actually something that we get one day to the next, day after day, just like what the nation of Israel experienced there in the wilderness. What did God do? He provided them manna, bread from heaven. They looked at it and they said, what is it? The word manna literally means, what is it? They looked at this stuff on the ground and they go, what is it? And God says, it's bread from heaven. So every day they were to go out and collect, but never for two days. If they collected two days worth, with the exception of the Sabbath, when they brought it home, it rotted. Why did God do this? Because he was trying to actually build faith through his faithfulness. Because the reality of this is, is they had a need. They had a need, and they, it required faith in God for him to fulfill that need. One of the biggest issues we have going on right now in church in America, in families in America, in our life in general, is we have so little need, it requires almost no faith. It requires almost no faith to go out and live because our needs are already met. I open up the pantry, and my pantry is full of food. I don't have any great need for food because it's already there. And the funny thing is, whenever the pantry gets a little low because Angela hasn't put in a Walmart pickup order yet, I cry out, oh God, look at the pantry. It's only half full. He's forsaken me. And the reality is there's still a half, a half pantry full of food, just not the snacks I like. And so as parents, we've done such a good job of providing for our kid and our parents and our parents' parents that we've wanted to take care of our children. We've wanted to do so much for them that, that in essence, what we've actually done is we've limited their faith because they don't see any need in their life and therefore their faith is lacking. So as God provides daily for the bread of the nation of Israel, it was in order to build faith, not in themselves, but in his faithfulness. That he's going to take care of me tomorrow. How do I know? I don't know. I'm just going to have to get up tomorrow and check it out. They get up tomorrow, there he is. He provided again. Praise the Lord, Jehovah Jireh. He's God our provider. And what he was really teaching them is that I am the bread of life. That's what Jesus would say in John chapter 10. I am the bread of life. If you want to know what you need to depend on daily, day in and day out, and this is a scary bread to depend on because I like French bread, and I like 12 grain bread. And if you noticed, I like sourdough bread. I don't really like the whole wheat bread all that much. I tried the low carb bread, made me sick. I like bread. I like it a lot. But I struggle to depend on the bread of life because I don't see it. Maybe it won't happen tomorrow. Maybe it won't. I don't know. I'm going to have to have faith to trust Him daily in this relationship. And so my encouragement to you would be in this, that before your feet hit the floor in the morning, don't reach to the nightstand and grab the idle phone. It's so tempting to do it. 
first say, Lord, I want to live on the bread you have for me today. I want to live on whatever you're going to provide for me to feed on today. And here's the truth, folks. It might not always be the bread we think we're going to get. I think I'm going to get up today. I'm going to get me some sourdough bread. And it might be rye. Or, or it might be that low-carb bread that makes you a little sick. But the reality of it is he's going to provide for that day. It just doesn't always look the way we wanted it to look. And as you go through the day, be reminded of this, is that this is the bread that Jesus thinks is best for me to eat. This is the healthiest thing that I can have today right here. So before your feet hit the floor, just pray that. Lord, I want to feed on the bread you have for me today. And then you can pick up your idle phone and you can look at it and you can check the news. But do that first. Because here's what Jesus is trying to share with us on how we are to live. We are to remember the past. We're not to completely forget the past, but here's the thing about the past is that I cannot change it, but I most certainly can learn from it. I can always learn from the past. I can plan for the future because here's here's another truth. I'm going to have to account for what I've done here today. So just like that unjust steward, I've got limited resources, but i got resources, man. And I can plan for the future. What am I going to do with what God's given me to do this thing today? What conversation am I willing to have even though it makes me feel uncomfortable? What way can I be intentional about a relationship even if I don't see the profit in it? It's profitable. And so I can plan for the future knowing that I'm going to give an account, but know this, that one little wrinkle in this deal, it throws it all off. So don't get so far out there that that you let all your hope be in that thing because he can change the thing on a dime and completely change it up on us. That's a part of your daily bread. And here's the last thing, live in the present. This is the point I'm trying to drive home, to consume the bread that he's given us for today. That and nothing more. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you, first of all, Lord, just for providing. In this time, uh, this you know Thanksgiving week and this Thanksgiving season, I am so thankful for the way you have provided for us. Lord, as a church, you provided a building. We certainly don't deserve that. Lord, you provided heat that if the front door is open, it works. Uh, Lord, thank you for the way you provided a place for our kids to go. Lord, thank you that you've put food in our bellies, clothes on our back, and Bibles in our hands. Father, you have given us the bread of life for us to go back to time and time again for us to consult your word. Thank you, Father, that for all the times I have tried to take matters into my own hands, you continually remind me that I am to lay them at your feet first. Thank you, Father, for not giving up on us. Thank you for being long-suffering for the way you continually pursue after us over and over and over again. Thank you, Father, for your words, for this teaching, for the ways that we are to live as followers, as believers. Lord, I just want to praise you for all that you're up to. Thank you, Father, even uh, in the middle of this pandemic. Because in the middle of this, what you are doing is you are squeezing purity out of your church. Lord, you are you are allowing things to happen in people's lives, and you're allowing us to to continue to come together. And even for those that are online, Lord, thank you for them. Thank you for their willingness to join in in less than stellar conditions on on the book of face. Thank you, Lord. 
Thank you for the, your provision of even providing technology so that we can do this thing. Father, I'm so very grateful for what you're up to. You have blessed us in so many ways. Lord, I pray that for me personally and for all those here, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would look and examine our resources. What does it look like in my cupboard? What things can I use for your kingdom today? Lord, please help us. Be with us. In Jesus' name.